This is the Biblical Mind Podcast, produced by the Center for Hebraic Thought. Honest five-star reviews help others find this podcast. Visit the magazine at thebiblicalmind.org for articles and videos that explore the deep structures of Scripture. I've been working on the material for the New Heaven and Earth book for 40 years, and it's been almost always positively received. At the very beginning, there was some negative response, but as over time, more and more people are just dying to hear this point of yeah, view. Yeah, and so the point of view is, well, how would you summarize? What would be the thumbnail you would give for that book? The thumbnail I would give is that um, God is a creator of the heavens and the earth and cares passionately about the world that God made. God so loved the world, he not only gave his only son, but he so loved the world that he has valued this world and values people in this world and values the concrete life of human beings in the world. And that's why the vision of the end is about the redemption of the world, because of the love of God. And we should name the boogeyman in this conversation, which is uh, American rapturous theology, but it's not just Americans, it's gone out everywhere in the world, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so by the yeah. time I got to seminary as a fairly new Christian in the late 1990s, um, I was kind of having to learn. I knew what the rapture was, but I didn't really know there were any alternatives. And then uh, your book, uh, I don't, when, when did New Heavens New Earth? It was, yeah, okay. So it was a 2014. bit late. So I, I knew Al Walters and Anthony Hookema and uh, starting to hear rumblings from this guy, Tom Wright. Right. But you, but you know that, um, the book that I wrote with Brian Walsh, which first addressed this, came out mm. the year before Walter. There you go. 1984. Oh, yeah. 1984. <laughs> that, th- that's the book that started to publicize this stuff. Tom Wright got okay. his views from that so, book. No, I did not know that. That's good. That that's because, good to know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, when, when we're, writing the, we're, we're writing this book, The Transforming Vision, Shaping a Christian Worldview, Brian Walsh and myself, he's a PhD student in philosophy of religion at McGill, and Tom Wright is teaching uh. New Testament at McGill. And they meet every week once to go over his Colossians commentary for the Tyndale series. And Walsh keeps challenging mm-hmm. his otherworldly spirituality in that commentary until Wright changes the entire commentary. And he actually writes a, a Themelios article a few years later about how his theology changed. And he, he cites that as the fundamental change. He believes now that, that the, you know, the, the, all things hang together in Christ, all things created in Christ, all things reconciled in Christ. This became the key text through Walsh's pressing him in the very year wow. we were working on this book. And so, so Wright cites our book, and especially Brian Walsh, because they were friends first. Well, I became friends with him later on. He cites him in about four of his books as having influenced this view. So yeah. Wright was kind of late to the well, party. <laughs> and uh, he certainly amplified that view uh, in many ways. Yeah, so, yeah. Because yeah. anything he says, you know, is there in the world. Everybody yes, knows it. It is yeah. a sounding board. He, he does, because uh, I, I was a fellow at St. Andrew's with him. And, and same thing, I, ha- I would have lunch with him somewhat regularly. And um, you realize he just absorbs everything around him and synthesizes and is constantly oh, yeah. churning yeah. Uh, activity. So I'm glad you guys got in there at the right moment to, uh, to bend his thinking that way. Yeah, 1983. Wow. I'm not going to tell was... you what I was doing in 1983. Yeah. <laughs> I might <laughs> yeah. have been in elementary school then, still. Um, well, that's great. So, 
I, I would imagine that amongst an American audience, uh, if you suggested that the rapture might not be a thing, like what's what's the instant reaction that you get? And do you get any reaction to this anymore? Or do you feel like that's old hat now? So, yeah, yes, yeah, it's changed. I remember one time I taught a course for, um, it was for, you know, Christian college students overseas. Hmm. It was in Belize on creation care. And I did the biblical material. And I... Challenge the rapture, and they all said, "Yeah, who cares?" <laughs> who cares? <laughs> no, I guess if you're in a creation care program, right, right. you've dumped the rapture a long time right. ago. It doesn't mean anything to you. So I've got different responses. By and large, I get half my class says, right. "I teach this stuff every year, in fact, every semester." Half my class says, "Wow, never heard this before." The other half says, "Yeah, our church hmm. been teaching that for twenty years." So it depends, you know, where you come from and what you've been exposed to. So when somebody asks you, I'm sure you get this because I get it with my students, they're like, so what happens to somebody when they die, according to scripture? That's what I'll usually add. Do you mean according to scripture? Mm-hmm. What, what, do you, what do you walk them through? So I walk them through a couple of things. The first thing I say is scripture is not concerned about what happens to you when you die. Scripture is concerned about the redemption of the world, which happens at the return of Christ and cosmic restoration at the final judgment. Um, There are six texts in the New Testament that have been used to say that between death and resurrection, you exist in a disembodied state with Christ. And I said, if you want me, I can go through those six texts and show you that's not what any of them say. Um, But it's really not important. So you can believe what you want to believe. And and I kind of say it humorously, you know, believe what you want to believe. Just it's irrelevant to the yeah. genuine Christian hope. Uh, if we could That's pick the one of the, sorry, it. if we could pick one of those so texts, because I know somebody's thinking yeah, go, like, no, well, what do you do with Jesus and yeah, the yeah. thief on the cross, right? Yeah, yeah. I, uh, okay, me too. That's, that's, that's the easiest I'm like, Are you one kidding? to deal with. <laughs> that's the absolutely easiest one. So, you know, the thief on the cross says, you know, um, you know, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says, I tell you the truly, 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 today you'll be with me in paradise. The first thing is that the kingdom that Jesus is coming into is the, king, the messianic kingdom of the rule over the world <laughs> that will be established through Israel. So it's a very this-worldly mm-hmm. rule that he's talking about, right? And when Jesus says today be in paradise, the Greek word paradise is a translation mm-hmm. of gan, garden. It's the Garden of Eden he's talking about. And to be with him in the Garden of Eden is when the garden is now fully disclosed again. And in Revelation, the mm-hmm. garden is in the midst of the city, which comes down out of heaven because I mean, there is more than one intertestamental Jewish tradition about what happened to the Garden of Eden. But generally, the idea is it's inaccessible to us now because it's a place of perfect harmony with God. And the human race was exiled from the garden. And so it was taken up into heaven, which meant to to a high mountain at the boundary between heaven and earth that no one could enter. And so it comes back down from that mountain to be the earthly restoration. So today... Which is very interesting. That means in right. your consciousness today, because you won't have consciousness between death and resurrection, you will be with me in the new creation, is what yeah. Jesus is saying. So we don't usually read these texts in accordance with the conceptions of his day. We read it with modern conceptions. Uh, well, and just flatly, I mean, yeah. uh, you could just say, well, clearly yeah. Jesus didn't go into paradise, whatever you think that is. Today, he went to Sheol or the grave for three days, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. So. That's so right. It, that's it right. can't yes, mean yeah, what he yeah. seems to be saying. He seems to be saying something else. Um, 
So, okay. Yeah. So that's one of the, the texts that I think a lot of people, we, we, I know that you have a numbered list here we could work through, but um, that's that, the yeah. caught up into the heavens, you know, and I, there's good work on all of these. But once you've said, you say the focus is on redemption, I mean, there is this kind of weird thing when as a biblical scholar or anybody who's read the Bible a lot, you're dealing with an argument from silence in some ways when you're talking about, well, where do we go when we die? And we're like, as you said, they're not that interested in this topic. So you paint the opposite picture. Like, let's look at what they really are interested in. And so what's the most fascinating thing for the biblical imaginary? Since it's a topic I've been working on for 40 years and more, it's hard to say what is the most important thing because there's so many things that are interesting to me. Right now, what I'm working on is the coming of the presence or the glory of God into the world. So I've been merging now over the years God's desire to redeem this creation and human life with the, the God's desire to manifest his presence in the world. And this, if you go to the Old Testament and you think about the coming of the presence of God into the tabernacle and the temple, and it fills the temple and tabernacle, that is meant to be sort of a foretaste of the coming of God's presence into the world to fill all heaven and all earth. And in the story of the Bible, it really begins with Genesis 2 verse 7, where, where God in Genesis 1 creates humans as his image. But in Genesis 2, you don't have image language used. But God takes a human being that he makes on the dust of the ground, and he blows his breath into that human being, and the human being comes alive. And the, the breath or presence of God now is in a human being. So the human being is meant to be the mediator of the presence of God in the world. But by our disobedience, rebellion, violence, we have blocked the presence of God. And so God works through Israel as a royal priestly kingdom to be present to them and that they would manifest his presence in the world. And ultimately, the Messiah coming from them is the full incarnation of the presence of God. John 1 says we saw his, the glory of God in Jesus, the same mm. glory, the kavod, or, you know, from the Old Testament that was in the temple and tabernacle. We saw it in the man Jesus. And then the glory comes as he breathes on the disciples, receive the Holy Spirit as the Father sent me, so send I you. The presence of God is in the church, but ultimately the presence of God is to fill the creation. So this theophanic glory of God, the theophany of the, 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 the magnificent presence that we can be with God in creation. Mm. We don't have to leave creation to be with God is, is what I've been working on. As I see it so pervasive now in the Bible where I never used to see it. It's, yeah, it's absolutely dominant it's, uh, for me. I read it every semester with freshmen and uh, it just pops off the page again and again and in surprising ways. I, I wonder, I know um, you're not a huge fan of the term metaphysical because it's too, because uh, everybody has their own definition, which it is a problematic <laughs> term. But I think somebody who maybe has been raised with a spiritual versus physical divide in their mind, there's the spiritual world and the physical. Everything mm -hmm. you just said mm -hmm. sounded really physical. So where does spiritual come in? And mm -hmm. obviously mm -hmm. Paul talks mm -hmm. about spiritual. So what do you think spiritual yeah. means in this context? Yeah. So we have to disabuse ourselves of the Western idea that we learned from Platonism, which is very common today, that spirit has to do with immateriality. There is no association in the mm. Bible with spirit and immateriality. 
Uh, I'm not saying the spirit is material or not. It's just not an issue. Those are not the categories that are used to think about it. Spirit is the energeia, the power, the dunamis of God to work in the world, to transform the world. So God's spirit is what brings life. When God breathes the spirit, the face of the ground is renewed, says Psalm 108. He takes away his spirit or his breath and things die. So this is the power to live. And then the spirit becomes the power of regeneration. To be spiritual is to be um, guided by the presence of God to live in the right way. So a Christian in, in Pauline language is a spiritual person. That doesn't mean you're an immaterial person. And the resurrection body is a spiritual body. Mm. It doesn't mean it's an immaterial body. It's a body energized by the spirit. It will mm. not die. It's not corruptible anymore. So we have to think in different kinds of categories. So spirit is an important category in the Bible. It just doesn't mean what we always hmm. have thought it so meant. So I, I wonder on that front then, um, I, I first heard it through Ray Anderson. Maybe it was from you originally, I don't know. But this idea that uh, the presence of God is kind of like this life-giving force in the garden. And it's actually the exile that sends him out of the presence that begins kind of the decay clock, as it were. Uh, have you heard that view? Okay. Is that does that dovetail? That does as well. Now, um, I, I've read Ray Anderson on Image of God when I was doing my original research on the topic because mm. I don't know this aspect. But a lot of people have mm. said something similar to this over the years. Okay. It doesn't originate with me by any means. <laughs> yeah, <news>. well, <laughs> again, you popular—you were the sounding board. I, I mean, I don't know a scholar or a biblical scholar that, uh, at least in the church world, that is not citing um, your work in New Heavens, New Earth as kind of foundational for their thinking. You and An Anthony Hookma. Mm. Um, so if... The next concern, I'm just giving you like everything my students lodge at me. So this is, I'm cheating here. Sure. <laughs> yes, that's, yeah. that's fantastic. No, that's great. Um, that's the way so to do then, it. Well, what would you say at a funeral? You know, grandma's dead. What? How, how could you possibly yeah. comfort somebody in death if they're not with Jesus? Yeah. So, you know, um, I, I preached um, two, two or three years mm -hmm. ago at my, my mother-in-law's funeral. And I preached on my, my dad's funeral 10 years before, my mom's funeral two years before that. And I preached the same sermon roughly at each. And at the last funeral, at my mother-in-law's funeral, her two sisters were there. They're, they're in their 80s now. And I preached explicitly that you don't go to heaven when you die. We're looking for the resurrection of the dead. I made this very clear. You know what? One of them came up to me afterwards and said, Richard, at my funeral, would you preach that mm. service, that same sermon? Because that gives us such hope. Yeah. Uh, wait. I'm trying to think in the mind of somebody who's hearing that and uh, thinking, I think they would question, well, why would that? I mean, I, I, I see it as hopeful as well, but why would that give somebody such hope? Because you don't just say that in a, a bare statement, that, that you're not going to be heaven with, with Jesus when you die. You're going, what you do is you, you sketch the, the vision that, I sketch the vision of God's love for the world, and God wants to restore this world to be a beautiful place where sin is and death are overcome. And this is the vision we have, and do you want to be a part of that? If you do, our hope is that when Christ returns, he will make all things new, and there will be no death or mourning, or, and tears be wiped away. Mm -hmm. So that's the way I preached it, as this something that we can yearn for, that our hearts desire, that affects, and I also challenge those who are younger and not going to be dying soon, right? Mm. How do we live towards that vision even now? That if you just wait for the end, that's insufficient because this vision of the end is meant to challenge us to transform our lives, to begin living already now, 
your kingdom on yeah. this earth as and it now is in you, heaven. Now you teach in the Wesleyan tradition. Wesleyans are uh, typically associated mm-hmm. with the Pentecostal, or I should say Pentecostals are associated with the Wesleyan tradition, to say it correctly. So, yes, right. Part of the holiness yeah, part movement. Of the holiness and I think most people yeah. would say, but aren't Pentecostals all rapturist, right? And so is, is there a, a stream of theolog- theology in the Pentecostal tradition that sees things the way that you're laying them out? Yeah. Um, I don't know if it's historically there, but I know that there are Pentecostals today who are certainly with Mm. New Heaven, New Earth vision. There are people in that mode today. Um, I've had reviews of my books in Pentecostal Mm. journals that have been very positive. But, you know, in the Wesleyan tradition, John Wesley, in the last decade of Mm. his life, came to this view and has sermons on this called The New Creation and the Great Assize, which is about the redemption of the world. And that he talks about how God loves the world so much he will never let it die. He wants to renew the world. That's toward the end of his life. And that became part of a stream that some people, like the Wesleyan theologian Randy Maddox, uh, takes that theme. And um, Howard Mm. Snyder also takes that theme as a very important theme in their theology. But I, I learned from hmm. them that it went back to Wesley in the last decade. Uh, Wesley, maybe I've hung around Tom McCall too much, but he seems like a much more interesting figure than any of us give him credit for. Uh, I, I um, agree. No, I so agree. So let me put yeah. another question to you. Um, now, I hate this qu- I hate any question that takes this form, but it's the one that comes to myself. Because <laughs> a student might hear this or a, a, a Christian might hear this, and they go like, okay, okay, I hear you. You walk through the Bible with them, show them what's going on. And then they'll say something like, but what's so wrong with just believing, you know, that you go to heaven when, when you die or go, you know, or go to hell when you die, right? What's so wrong with believing that? I say, I tell them, if you want to believe that you go to heaven when you die, I'm not going to disabuse you of it. <laughs> believe in fairy stories if you want. Sometimes I actually say that, but I don't usually, I don't usually say, not so cynical, right? But I just say, whatever you do, if you believe that, if you make that central to your eschatology, you are mm. being fundamentally unbiblical. But you can believe that. I mean, Tom Wright <laughs> believes that, you know? That's fine. But what's really important is what he calls that life after death, and he says a new creation is life mm-hmm. after life after death. And I say, well, there is no in-between life after death anyway. But yeah, so I, I, I challenge them that way. You can believe that, but then I show them why it's irrelevant. And usually when I'm teaching my course, I, I take I, I go through the biblical story. I teach a course on the Christian worldview. Mm. It's called Being in the Story. And it's kind of an integrated Bible, philosophy, culture, theology course that, that does a lot of stuff together. And by the time we get to eschatology, I don't have to argue my position much. They see the relevance of why mm. this is unimportant to believe what, you, what happens between death and resurrection. Because right. they have the vision. They, they get it pretty clearly. It has to be asked here as well, because um, we could say, well, where is my grandma, You know, my, or my mom died two years ago. We say, where is mom? Well, she's like me awaiting the resurrection, right, in some ways. Uh, I think a lot of people are going to ask or have asked, well, what do you do with limbo and um, and uh, purgatory and, yeah, uh, and these purgatory, intermediate yeah. states that are, arose in Hellenistic Judaism, I would say. Yeah, yeah. Um, the, the way I would approach that is to say um, the, the metaphor, the dominant metaphor in the Old Testament and in Paul is that we are asleep. 
And what that means, mm -hmm. I think, is that we have no consciousness. We are awaiting. And in fact, there is this really interesting mm -hmm. text, and I learned it from Tom Wright, that in the wisdom of Solomon, the dead have great hope because mm -hmm. they have the hope of immortality. The dead are not immortal. They have the hope of immortality. They're waiting the resurrection. So I find that an interesting phrase from an mm -hmm. intertestamental Jewish text. Um, so I was I contributed an essay to a book called Four Views on Heaven that came out in early this year. And one of the, the writers who's, he's, he, he defended a Catholic point of view mm -hmm. was Peter Kreeft. You know, Kreeft used to be a he Protestant. He teaches here at my college, yeah. Catholic many years ago. Right, right. So he's, I found his essay the most interesting. I mean, I challenged him. We each challenged each other's essays. And he responded the most hmm. positively to my challenge of anybody, thinking it was really insightful. But he also made this interesting comment. He said, I assume since my three interlocutors are all evangelical Protestants, that they will all agree with me on the intermediate state and disagree with me on um, purgatory. And I responded saying, actually, I'm the only one who disagrees with you on the intermediate state. And I actually agree with you on purgatory in this sense, that I believe purgatory is the initial part of the new heaven and the new earth. For to, to be able to participate in the new creation, mm. you need to be radically transformed. And so someone who has just committed themselves to Christ and then an earthquake kills them, they haven't been transformed. So when is that going to happen? That's going to be the beginning of the new creation because even Revelation 21 and 22 portrays a new creation, not as something mm -hmm. instantaneous, but like a process. And so I believe there'll be a process of cleansing of the world, including ourselves. So we need, mm -hmm. you know, formation and sanctification. So I said, I, I think your description of, of um, purgatory is a really good description. I just don't mm. think it happens when you're dead. Okay, so let's go over the basic eschatological timeline uh, as you see it. Uh, so someone is conceived, right? Did they did their soul exist? Before, a, was there a soul? Is it separable from the body? And did it exist? Uh, sorry, that was B and C as well. And did it exist before <laughs> they were conceived? <laughs> you're asking such an easy question, man. So... <laughs> So there is no such thing in the Bible as a separable soul. You know, soul is a term for the mm -hmm. human being in their organic life. It tends to have also um, secondary meanings, mm -hmm. but it means a, a full-bodied person. Um, so I don't think there is a pre-existent soul, and I don't think you, a soul exists when you're dead. Yeah, I know. So I think you is that uh, yeah, yeah, so I, I think see yet? I don't remember. Oh, I, I got them out of order. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, but I think, yeah. So we, we use the term, we, we actually have a, a, a version of the word soul in English that kind of fits here, which would be, you know, when you, uh, on a plane manifest, they would say, you know, 42 souls on board, right? The whole thing. Yep. Yeah. 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 Yep. Yeah. Exactly. And SOS, yeah. right? Save our souls. Right? <laughs> Doesn't mean yeah, come yeah, pray yeah. for us while you watch us drown. Um, right, right. Okay, yeah, so yeah. that's yeah. that's how we come into being uh, is through conception and we're the whole being. Uh, upon, oh, here's a good one. Upon death, people who die and come back uh, from the dead, what do you do with them? What would you say happens to them? Like, like oh, wait, uh, yeah. Um, oh, I could really ask some yeah, tough ones. Yeah. Uh, like, 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 the, right. like the, the, the widow's yeah. son that Elijah raises from the dead, or you know, when the graves are yeah. open. Is that resuscitation or resurrection? Just walk around. Yeah, okay, good, good. That's resuscitation. <laughs> yeah. I feel like I'm quizzing yeah. you now. I'm quizzing you on everything I've learned from you. <laughs> well, what, you know, what one of the one of the fascinating things about resurrection? I learned this from um, mm. 
I think it was Pannenberg. And mm. Brian Walsh wrote his dissertation on Pannenberg. So I learned a lot of Pannenberg along the way. And Pannenberg wrote on the resurrection. He was an important doctrine for him. And one of the things he said is that the, the bare fact of someone coming back from the dead mm. is a meaningless fact, unless it's interpreted within a horizon of expectations. So an example would be, you know, I'm walking down the street and somebody says, hey, did you, you see Bob who died last week? I saw him. He's been walking around. I said, yeah, man, four <laughs> out, man. Right, somebody right, come, what right. difference does it make that somebody came back from the dead? But if the expectation is God is going to renew the world yeah. and there's going to be a general resurrection. And one man is raised from the dead as the first fruits of that harvest. Then I say, right. oh, crap, huh. something new is happening in the world. So it's it's the horizon of expectations that, that makes sense of Good the Good old Volthart. He doesn't get enough uh, credit for all this all this work he did for us <laughs> theologically. Okay, um, and yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, what what do you think about this boy who said, "I went to heaven, I saw heaven." Well, it turned out to be a fraud, right? Uh, yeah, but I I suspected it was fraudulent when I, actually, I just heard his description of heaven. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, so there's a lot of reports like that. I've just, I got from the library and interlibrary loan book that is a serious study of both the Old Testament and New Testament texts on this and all the reports doing sociological, psychological analysis of what's all the reports and it concludes they're all fraudulent. But it's a book that's interdisciplinary. Mm. It's beyond my expertise. And I'm working through that because it's fascinating. So somebody has taken right. the time to go and evaluate that from a perspective, a biblical yeah. perspective. Yeah, I, um, yeah. Well, there's whole the 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 one kid who they made a book and a movie out of it. He admitted later that he defrauded his parents. He you know he he made it all up and actually came out with a quite good theological apology. Like he showed he he had really thought through the topic and no wow. longer agreed with it. And so uh, okay, uh, and then when somebody dies, so when you and I die, we go into the grave. Sheol, right? Uh, what does that physically mm -hmm. mean for us? Our bodies begin to disintegrate. We know we no longer have consciousness. But for those who are held in Abraham's bosom in the love of God, God will restore us the new creation. How we don't know. Um, I have no understanding of the mechanism of that. I have no understanding of these are all debates from the Middle Ages. Right? Right. At what right. age will you come back <laughs> as I'm a child? Or as an adult? What does that mean? You know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, in the resurrection of Jesus, he had the nail prints, you know, so he had wounds. Uh, so what does that mean? Will, will my body still have its wounds and it's, will my left leg right. still be somewhat shorter than my right? You know, uh, will I still not have a very good ear for music <laughs> or will that be healed? I don't have no idea, right? right. We, we, the Bible just doesn't tell you those uh, kinds of okay. things. And so, um, yeah, because we have all, there's all kinds of issues. I mean, it, to be fair, like we don't have a physical explanation of what holds us together as Richard or Drew today, right? I mean, that, that's right. a mis uh, uh, that's physical right, yeah. mystery as well. Okay. And then the resurrection happens. Who's getting resurrected and what's going to happen? So that's complicated. And I have not bothered to study the details of that because it really doesn't matter um, for your living today. From, I'm not interested in eschatology to figure out what the little two on the left foot of the beast means, as one of my pastors used to say. The intricacies of it don't, don't appeal to me, but the motivation mm. to know your end creates in you a desire mm. to live towards that end. So that's what's important to me. So is there going to be a general resurrection of the righteous and the unrighteous and a final judgment? Or what will that, what will the general resurrection be? Will it be simply a resuscitation, you know, 
how did the writers conceive this? Um, I happen mm. to agree with G.C. Burkhauer that if you look at all the passages of eschatology in the Bible, that you'll find lots mm. of inconsistencies conceptually. But if you ask what is the intent of each text, you'll find consistency of theology under, underlying it. So exactly how what the resurrection would be like, I don't know. My my understanding, both from biblical texts and from the inner logic of the theology, would be that the, the, the new creation is experienced by those who are redeemed. The meek will inherit the earth, which means that those who have resisted God's purposes do not share in that new creation. So they are, they, they, they like Adam and Eve expelled from paradise or like the Israelites expelled from, um, the land. They mm. experience cosmic disinheritance. That's the metaphor I've been using. You don't inherit the earth. So what happens to you? I don't know, right. but it doesn't sound like it's pleasant, but I don't think there is any way to describe what happens to you in terms of the later right. medieval doctrine of hell. That's just total imagination. Yeah, let's, uh, like let's talk about hell for a second because I I often tell students, well, there is no thing that we call hell in scripture because our version of hell has all this, it's a concatenation of all these ideas that just aren't in scripture. So in fact, mm -hmm. the word hell itself has a weird Anglo-Saxon etymology to it as well. So, um, mm -hmm. what could you do? You have a replacement word for for hell? Oh, okay, I, I did. Oh, I write. I wrote that one down. I actually like that. <laughs> I, I, yeah. I've been using. I've been using that of late, and because I used that at one point in the New Heaven New Earth book, I got invited by this group. Oh yeah, that's yeah. called I've Rethinking Hell. To, to, to present at their eighth annual conference, uh, though yeah. I wasn't really focusing on that topic. I was focusing on this worldly life that God wants us to live. But yeah, but that, that little <laughs> phrase got me into that uh, conference. Cosmic disinheritance. <laughs> uh, yeah, and I think that actually it, it balances out also that it's an inheritance, that our adoption is for this inheritance that we've come into. Yeah. Yes. Uh, it's, it's important to realize that the Bible doesn't portray heaven right. and hell as these two alternatives. It portrays this world yeah. or death. Death, not just physical death, but the metaphorical death of, you know, um, corruption, um, distortion, destruction of life, the opposite of all that is flourishing. That's the, that's the portrayal, you know, choose life and not death. Choose to serve the Lord right. and not idolatry. And one is a way right. of wisdom, one is a way of folly. And one way ends in death and destruction, the other way ends in the fullness of life in the land. That's yeah. the basic no, that's, that's good. And it's really difficult. I think even the language in English of uh, wisdom or folly, we hear that as foolishness is like, oh, okay, so he's being foolish. And, and the biblical authors are like, no, that's killing yeah. people. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's moral uh, It will folly. kill you. Yeah, and yeah, it, you, yeah. you'll probably bring down others with you. Um, okay, final question, yeah. just to be completely cheeky. Uh, how many husbands does the woman have in the in the resurrection? Do you does that story by now that people are listening, we've already got a QA episode because I've dropped I've already said I don't think Jesus is talking about marriage at all in that passage. So I have this other interpretation. But but it still bothers me right. when I think about it like, yeah, who 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 is she married to? Well, I think the point of that passage is there will not be traditional right. marriage in the, in the resurrection. Yeah. So however you work it out. I mean, yes, I've just got hold of an article, a very long non-published article Whoa. of 50 pages on this that says it's not about marriage at oh. all. It tries to go into what it would have been given Second Temple Jewish ideas. So I want to work my way through it. 
It's a kind of article written by a non-scholar, but who has training in, in the languages and, and the background, okay. who could compress it into 20 pages if she really wanted. But it's like very lengthy and tedious with lots of quotations from second time literature and so forth. And I've got to work my way through it and, and see. Yeah. She's saying well, it's I hope she publishes it because I, I, yes. I have a, a Lucan... Uh, a Lucan version of that argument, but I was like, ah, I should write an article, but I'm like, somebody else should do this. Somebody who knows Luke better than me. Yeah. I want to contact her and, and say, would you like oh, to nice, shorten this? Nice. I can get it published if you want, but nobody will publish a 40, 50 Not these days, like maybe in Germany. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> but you've yeah. got too much detail in it that you don't oh, need. We're getting actually. little, little gems thing, yeah. here now. Well, Dr. Richard Middleton, thank you so much for your expertise, your scholarship over the years, <laughs> your wisdom, and your help thinking through this topic. It's my pleasure, Drew. Thank you so much for inviting me. You've been listening to the Biblical Mind Podcast, exploring the deep structures of Christian scripture. For more, Visit the magazine at thebiblicalmind.org. Subscribe to this podcast at all the usual places so you never miss an episode.